Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Radio Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And Sherry Edwards is off just pounding away at the Sound Health portal. It's really, I know I say it every week, but it's its ongoingly true. Every week there's something new that she's put up or a new chart or a new amount of information can be gathered at soundhealthportal.com where currently you can go to soundhealthportal.com do a couple of 45-second recordings through your computer now online, which is really great, and choose under services and then under campaigns. There are always about four or so, four or five different campaigns that they're giving away free for a trial. So you can do a couple of 45-second recordings, sign up with your email. They don't spam you. They don't track you. Nothing. (laughs) They just send you a report. And you can put in the submit those recordings, choose the software you want to have your vocal print or voice run through. And I think currently there's PTSD, BioDiet. There might be neuroplasticity, I know that was up. And I'm not sure of the others, but you can go to soundhealthportal.com and look at services and then campaigns and you'll see what's free there to run. And You'll do that and submit the report, submit your information, and you'll receive a report back within a couple of hours to maybe 10 hours is the most I've had to wait with just a boatload of information. I suggest making a cup of tea or organic coffee and sitting down and reviewing it, and then you can take it to your healthcare practitioner and look at things that are high or low or inflamed or not inflamed or hypertonistic or hypotonistic or whatever area you want to look at. There's also, I say it every week, and it always makes me chuckle, you can also look at your golf swing. Yes, golf swing. You can actually improve your golf swing. I have talked to golfers who have done this, who have actually seen improvements in their golf swing, in their game, by running a vocal print, because then you can see what muscles might be underactive or overactive or it's all about balance. It's really quite amazing. And another feature of the soundhealthportal.com I like very much is the nano voice. I use the nano voice pretty frequently when I'm either try challenging or trying a food, a, a new food or a different food or something that I used to have an issue with, an allergy to. And you can go in and you record again a 45-second recording on the nano voice online. And you have that as a base level, and then you eat the food to add the supplement, a single thing, wait about 20 to 30 minutes, and then go back and test your vocal print again, which means doing a voice recording, and then it shows the chart right online. And you can see things that are out of balance. Something spiked, something dropped very low, and that gives you an indication that something is out of balance in or it improved something from the first vocal print. It made something that you're trying to work on be stronger or have more energy or however you want to talk about the language. And there's lots of demos about this at soundhealthoptions.com. And there you can go to, I think it's media, and see a number of webinars that Sherry Edwards has done online where you can look at the demonstrations and see how this works. And it's a lot of information, so just be prepared. I mean that in a good way, but it's a lot of information. And this is the point at which I remind everybody that you can find the replay of this show after we hit end, or I hit end. You can go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on radio, and click on Sound Health Radio, and the replay link that will be there for that and or you can go to your podcast aggregator, fancy talk for software on your phone or your laptop or your computer, such as uh, my current favorite, which is Pocket Casts, which is now free. You used to have to pay for it. Now it's free. And you can use that on your computer or on your phone. And or Google Podcasts or iTunes or Stitcher or any number of players. Google Player, that's another good one. 
and you'll be able to go there. In a, usually the aggregators take about half an hour to an hour to get the feed in there. And you'll be able to go to any of those and search for either Sherry Edwards or for one word, talk to me guy. And you'll find, I think as of this morning, it was 690 summit hours of shows. And this show will be at the top of that list. And one of the things I like about Pocket Cast, others do this, but Pocket Cast does this particularly well, is it's easy to share a show to somebody. And this is one of those shows with Vincent Adams, co-author of What's Making Our Children Sick, that you're going to want to pass around because there's a lot of good information in here. It's a great book. Um, yeah, it's really good information. So you can find it there and share it with others. With that, Vincent Adams is Professor of Medical Anthropology in the Department of Anthropology, History, and Social Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. She teaches core theory courses on the history and development of medical anthropology, reproductive health, and development of studies, social studies of science, technology and medicine, and ethnographic field methods. Her research interests include the social conditions and epistemology framings of science, medicine, politics, and culture, and she has worked in Nepal, Tibet, China, and the U.S. She's particularly concerned with efforts toward redress, accountability, and repair under conditions of climate change and planetary peril. She is author of numerous books on a variety of topics, including Asian medical systems, post-disaster recovery, global health, and her new work is on the relationships between food health and planetary survival. Vincent joins us to talk about what's making our children sick, how industrial food is causing an epidemic of chronic illness, and what parents and doctors can do about it. Welcome, Vincent. Thank you for having me. So I know it doesn't sound like an upbeat conversation and it can be tricky but it's it's a such a worthy conversation the research that you and Dr. Perro did was really wonderful in this book and as you and I talked a bit backstage I've been talking about this kind of information since the 80s so I was really excited to see a new perspective and I thought it was really interesting that the two of you Michelle is a medical doctor and you're a medical anthropologist. So my first question to do, <clears throat> excuse me, to you is, what is medical anthropology, and what drew you to that particular field? Uh, that's a, a very complicated question with <laughs> a long answer. I'll try to make it short. Um, so medical anthropology is a field that was formally uh, sort of established in the 1970s. Uh, but has a much longer history if you trace its origins in the field of anthropology and its concern with the difference between magic, witchcraft, religion, and science, for instance, uh, or whether you're looking at uh, questions about what makes someone um, a shaman in one culture and a schizophrenic in another, what we call mm -hmm. transcultural psychiatry. Um, and then in the 1960s, in the post-war years, a lot of anthropologists were being called upon to try to help uh, with the mission of international health development. So trying to, to deliver effective health care to people in the, at that time it was called the third or the undeveloped world. And anthropologists had this wealth of knowledge about how to um, help with that mission. And so a lot of funding was uh, created for training anthropologists cultural anthropologists in uh, health issues. And that was kind of the beginning of the field of medical anthropology. But as I said, um, that was as a formal discipline where you could get an actual PhD in, in that field. Um, there's also a long history of research in medical sociology that explores the, what we like to call the social construction of scientific knowledge so, uh, you know, telling a kind of alternative story about the way we know things in science, the way facts are made that have social context and social contingencies. 
And um, medical anthropology is also a, a field that taps into that rich history and uses that approach to understand what's going on in health and healthcare. So, for instance, we do work on global health projects. Uh, I have a lot of experience working in safe motherhood programs in Tibet and uh, Asia. Um, we look at traditional medical systems. We also look at things right here at home. Uh, for instance, uh, what is the interface between culture and health in the addiction epidemic, um, in the problem of changing healthcare infrastructure? Um, and my own work in the U.S. has been on post-disaster recovery and my current work on the toxic food environment and uh, generally chemical harm and what we can do about it. So that's how I, that's medical anthropology. <laughs> <laughs> and as a medical anthropologist, do you have a particular perspective or is it study related, meaning that it's related to what you're researching, you gather data, then study and formulate your view. Right. Does so anthropology is an interesting. Yeah, I, I, I think I understand what you're asking me. Uh, how do we approach the problem and what makes, like I will mm -hmm. just talk about how my approach, um, how, what I brought to the, the project with Michelle on uh, what we used to call Talk to Children. Um, that was the original title of the book. Uh, and mm -hmm. her title at least. Um, so my approach as an anthropologist is to uh, look at people in context of larger social, political knowledge systems. And um, so whereas Michelle had this amazing set of stories and experiences working with uh, uh, children who were chronically sick uh, with things that a lot of other doctors hadn't been able to really resolve for them. Uh, she, you know, she had the steady stream of kids coming in with all kinds of disorders from rashes and eczema over, you know, 80% of their body all the way to, you know, autism spectrum disorders, lots of digestive gut issues, um, and then was really amazingly uh, coming up with remedies that really helped, starting with food always. Uh, my interest was in how did we get into this situation where we have this rising epidemic of kids with chronic diseases that seem to be related to exposure to chemical harm and a lot of that harm coming through food. How did we get to this situation where mainstream medicine wasn't adequately dealing with this? How did we get into the situation where the regulatory environment had, had failed to uh, properly explore and come up with certain facts of certainty about the safety of uh, uh, the foods that now are grown, are designed to be grown with pesticides or have been turned into pesticides? Um, and then what kind of activism is possible in relation to that? So, you know, the book really focuses on a specific set of toxic exposures by way of food. And the scientific environment is very conflicted about whether, the, you know, what we know and what we can say about their potential harm. And so that was the stuff that fascinated me about her story. And I thought, well, you know, between her interest and my interest, we could really do a, a great job writing a book that, covers the entire picture, or tries to. <laughs> I think I've lost you. Whoops, pardon me. I was coughing for a moment. Okay. Um, oh, okay. I can't remember if I read or heard this because I've studied both of you so much now. Were you skeptical of Michelle's GMO work in the beginning when you first started working together? Is that correct? Yes, that was me. I, I definitely wrote about that. Um, I've given talks where, I, and in, in our book talk, I talk about that too. When I first started to talk with Michelle, I was fascinated by her description of the, the kinds of patients she was seeing. I mean, I'm a mother as well. I've got two kids, and I had seen this in my children's class and my kids' uh, schools, you know, lots of kids with allergies, uh, chronic morbidities, uh, he thinks that, you know, we were, they were getting given a lot of um, what in the book we call the Band-Aid remedies, you know, the steroids, the antihistamines, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. But no one was really telling these parents or kids what was really causing these problems. And <laughs> they were just living with the, the constant need for more medication. Um, 
And so when I started hearing her talk about these things, I, I sorry, what were you asking me again? I was asking about you being skeptical of Michelle's research. Oh, skeptical, right. So when I first heard her talking about these things, I thought, well, this is a really serious problem. And I agreed. This is a, these kids are really sick. But when she told me that she thought the biggest reason for their ailments was genetically modified food, I kind of thought, oh, no, that can't really be true because I had <laughs> been I had been raised in an environment where I had been told and I had heard and I'd read. And I even went to the Internet, and anyone reading the Internet will know right away that there's a lot of conflict about this. And, of course, we all know the scientific consensus has said these foods are safe, as are the pesticides that are used with them. And so, you know, being in a scientific environment, I teach at a medical school, I was sort of convinced by the consensus. And I thought, well, you know, the, the critics must be bucking up the wrong stream. They must, their facts must be wrong. So what I did is I spent like two or three years like really digging into it with Michelle. I, you know, we went to conferences. We, I talked to other scientists. I, we interviewed the patients. We interviewed the parents. We interviewed doctors. I just poured through the literature um, available, um, you know, on the internet and in the scientific journals. Michelle's also uh, got a huge repertoire uh, and grasp of that. And and what I decided is that well, it's, it's and in fact, I've gone on. I'm writing a second book right now about this problem, about how uncertainty about the safety of these foods was kind of built into them from the very beginning. And, and they are a good um, case study in how we've gotten into a predicament in the medical sciences in general um, and the sciences of chemical harm in particular, uh, where we are reproducing and reproducing uncertainty, despite the fact that there's a consensus. So there's ample evidence um, to doubt. There's ample evidence out there in the scientific literature to shed some doubt on the consensus. And so what I decided is, well, in writing this book with Michelle, we may not know for sure, but we know enough to act. And we should be doing what they've done in Europe and other places, which is following the precautionary principle and these things until we have more information or until we have um, uh, a different kind of regulatory procedure. I remember so I being at an event. In other words. <laughs> you came around. <laughs> I bet you eat organic now. Um, I, remember I the certainly first time do. I, heard, <laughs> I remember the first time I heard uh, Carolyn Raffensberger, who introduced the idea of precautionary principle. And yeah, all of my friends are like, we don't want to hear about it anymore. Stop that. But it's such a, it's such a, it's not a. I mean, it's such a radical concept. Not unlike what you're talking about in in what's making our children sick, is the idea that food is. That's really your radical foundational idea. Food. Whoa, radical. And that's the same. It's in the same category to me as the precautionary principle. Let's let's not let's let's lean toward the side of precaution. Perhaps we should really test these foods these manipulated foods or Roundup or any of these things. You know, the poor rats. I feel sorry for rats. Being a rat is bad karma in the lab world um, because they test them. But really, do we know on a long-term basis? Because you, in the book, I believe it was you that mentioned, really, on the, in, as particularly in an anthropological view, that on the scale of things, we really have not been consuming these things for very long. The glyphosates and the toxins, the poisons, whether it starts at DDT or wherever we started, the GMOs food. We really haven't been consuming these things for that long. And yet, one in two kids are sick today. And I just right. think and the precautionary principle makes sense. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, the precautionary principle is very, it's been very useful in the European context where you know, we're, frankly, a lot of the research that suggests there could be harm from these foods and pesticides um, is done. Uh, but the precautionary principle just wasn't adopted in the U.S. And um, it's true. We have had these foods in our food system in the U.S. in particular in great supply 
since the mid-1990s. So we've got a whole generation now and a half of kids who have been raised in a very high GMO food environment. It's, it's increased and amped up significantly in the past decades, at least in the use of um, the main commodity crops. But I think it's important. Like one of the things that I would say is that I was trying to be very careful, uh, and I think that Michelle and I agreed on most things. This is one thing where I'm not sure we would agree on it, but I, I am not opposed to the use of genetic engineering technologies. I mean, there's widespread use of them in, and I think Michelle would agree with this, in the biomedical world where when genetically modified organisms are used um, or genetic modification is used to develop drugs and other things, they are always tested on humans. But with plants, that process never really occurred. We don't do clinical trials using humans of food in general, so we don't do it on foods that have been deemed to be no different or generally recognized as safe in the same way that all food is recognized. So while we have a lot of research from animal studies on the effect of GMOs, on the effect of GMOs plus pesticides, and on the effect of pesticides alone, and when I say pesticides, I mean the ones that are used with these GMOs, um, and those, those scientific studies are of mixed results. I would say each study says one thing and then another study will say something else that contradicts it, depending on which field you're looking at. If you're looking at metabolomics or whether you're looking at cancer research or whether you're looking at body weights, gross body weights, organ weights, that kind of thing. So the available data is, is hard to decipher and know for sure. Um, and so given that that's true, we should be exercising precaution around it because there's mixed results, but we don't do that for a variety of reasons that have mostly to do with politics and money and large corporations. Mic drop, end of show. Um, no. <laughs> um, that leads me in a roundabout way talking, I, I think this was in the book. Again, it's all a blur. One of you uses this, or you write in the book, the terrain of conflict in health, and you talk about the cataclysm yeah. of three things. Can, we, can you throw that up on the board? For I, I have a place I want to get to, but I think this is really a great, this terrain of conflict in health, it's like a T-shirt. I'd wear that as a baseball cap, but it'd be way too long. Uh, it's such an important <laughs> thing you talk about, this cataclysm of three things. Please talk to that for a moment, would you please? Well, I can't actually remember where we said that in the book, but I will say that we talk about the perfect storm in which mm -hmm. we have this problem of living in a toxic environment from chemical exposures. And I don't mean just from food and pesticides. We are living with a lot of chemical exposures. Food is probably playing an important role in all of that. But even if we cleaned up the food, we'd still have the problem of lots of toxic exposures to deal with. Um, outmoded models of clinical care and disease causation. So a lot of the things that Michelle does in her own integrative practice are not really considered mainstream medical practice at this point. They're not part of the standard guidelines for clinical care. Uh, some concepts like leaky gut have been around a long time, but I, I think that we would be hard pressed to find a most, that that's a part of the repertoire for most doctors. Hardly anything is taught about food in medical school. And what is taught about is in terms of the, the sort of uh, sort of well-known sources of pathology around diabetes, overeating, um, allergies, that kind of thing, but nothing really on the quality of the food that's eaten or the potential of it being loaded with pesticides and hormones and other things. And then the third thing is the scientific community that's embattled when it comes to food health science. And that, again, is a problem that has to do with politics, <laughs> large corporations, money, and other things. <laughs> And particularly, you know, just the way things played out in the U.S. around our agro-industrial food system. So one thing I was going to say ago, before I, I didn't get to is, you know, a lot ahead. of listeners, I don't know if you got into this with Michelle, but a lot of listeners might not know what we're talking about when we're talking about GMO foods and the ones that we focus on in the book. Would it help to go into that a little bit? Yes, please. Yes. Yeah. So... As I said, we're not concerned with the use of genetic engineering technologies in general as a technology for medicine. We've done amazing things with that, and we are going to do amazing things with that. When it comes to the food system, we're focused on two kinds of genetically engineered 
technologies that <clears throat> genetic engineering technologies that have been used widely since the 1990s and now permeate the food supply and are used to grow the biggest commodity crops, soy, corn, canola, sugar beets, um, and then it also uh, it's used in animal feed with alfalfa and cotton. And what is compelling about those is not the fact those crops is not simply that their genes have been modified. I mean, the argument that modification of genes is a problem is, is, is sort of um, useless because we have been modifying things genetically since the dawn of agriculture. You know, we, we've been crossbreeding, selective cultivation, hybridization. These all change the genes. What is compelling about the argument about GE foods since the 1990s and that concerns us is that these are foods that were specifically designed to be used with pesticides. So the big one is the design of crops that are called Roundup Ready crops so that they can be used with Roundup and withstand the spraying of the active ingredient called glyphosate. This, and I'll get back to glyphosate. The second type is the de design of plants so that they become, they're, they're, um, basically genes are modified so that they contain a protein that is deadly to insects. So we turn the whole plant into a pesticide. Now, there are lots of arguments about why these are improvements on old agricultural technologies. For instance, glyphosate is thought, was thought when it was designed to be not harmful to humans because humans don't have the cellular pathway that plants do that it acts on. We now know, though, that the microbiome um, in the human gut does have cells that have that pathway. So the impact of this toxicant, this chemical glyphosate on our gut is really not well known yet. And, you know, we can speculate about the possibility that it is having an impact. Certainly in the, you know, the studies of metabolomics that are coming out of some of the research now, we would start, we should be curious about it. Also, glyphosate was patented as an antibiotic. So that alone should cause alarm to people. The presence of the cry protein or the BT crops that um, I said have been turned into pesticides, this is they've taken something called Bacillus thuringiensis. They've taken the proteins from it and put it into the plant so that it kills. Now, Bacillus thuringiensis is a naturally occurring um, insect killer. Um, but why do we care about whether it impacts, um, why do we care, why, why are we worried about it? So originally the idea was that that wouldn't also impact humans because the pH of the human gut is so different from that of insects. It wouldn't have the same effect. But we now know that the activation of that, that protein, that killer protein, has, has already been done in plants that are modified to be pesticides. So we're eating those pesticides, and we don't really know what the effect of that activated protein is in the gut of humans. So that's in a nutshell, why <laughs> I think we should be worried. So again, and then there are all kinds of enhancements that, that are used in the modification of crops, for example, making them frost resistant, making them uh, withstand certain kinds of fungus and that kind of thing. Um, the, the original GMO food was the flavor saver tomato that was designed to withstand shipping and have a, a, a thicker skin um, so that it would you know, ripen without, um, uh, without getting soft. And um, those enhancements are questionable. You know, we really don't know much about whether they cause problems that are specific as well. But the thing is, most of these plants that are genetically engineered are also designed, they're called stacked, with all these other traits that is being Roundup Ready and being um, uh, uh, BT or a pesticide. So, you know, there's just a lot. <laughs> A lot going on in the world of plant um, genetic modification. And uh, the main thing that, you know, we are worried about is just these big commodity crops that have actually fill a lot of the uh, packaged and uh, processed food, you know, what Michael Pollan calls the, uh, uh, what do he call them, food-like substances um, mm -hmm. that, you know, are a large part of the American diet these days. Well, um, I remember back in the a long time ago, mid-'80s, I think it was, that the Salinas Valley, I grew up near the Salinas Valley, and the Salinas Valley was having issues with 
saltwater intrusion into the water table, and that was because the Salinas Valley is less than 20 miles from the coast. And the, what created that was that the farmers were back then on unmetered wells, and they could draw whatever amount of water they wanted. And they were drawing so hard on the aquifer to grow monster crops that they were actually creating a vacuum on the water table, drawing salt water into that water table. So I remember in the early days of GMOs that they were modifying tomatoes with macro genes so that the tomatoes would be more tolerant toward a more saline water solution. And that was a long time ago. That was before GMO was a, actually an acronym of any kind. And even back then I thought, nah, that doesn't seem right. There's something tricky about that. I, you know, shouldn't we be looking at the why we have saltwater intrusion? A, a lot of, at least in my view, oftentimes these things are done because there's an issue that could be looked at, like in that case of saltwater intrusion. Why is there saltwater intrusion versus the workaround of, oh, let's just make it so that the top plants can tolerate that. And I, and I think that, that there is a question here. But that when I think about those bugs that are being given some kind of like sprayed with glyphosate or the BT applied to the bugs, then when that bug is in the field and either dying or before it dies, the bird flies along and eats that bug. Well, what's the effect of that bug with the pesticide chemical genetically modified to withstand, you know, whatever, on that animal or bird? There's that. Rather than dealing with, I, I understand the benefits of, of, like, the CRISPR idea and that. That's a different thing. But in terms of food, so much of this seems to be big eggs wanting to manipulate it so that, you know, now they're using glyphosate to spray crops just prior to harvest because it makes the foliage drop off. So, right. I don't know, so, I can't, I'm trying to, go ahead. I have no question there. Please, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic. I am, I'm very sympathetic to farmers. I mean, I feel like, you know, it's a moving target. Being able to produce food in a shifting environment, in a changing environment, is always going to be a challenge. It always has been a challenge for farmers. Um uh, you know, the, the argument about glyphosate being sprayed on wheat and other foods, I mean, I, there's, con- there's a lot of contestation about that. I've talked to a lot of agronomists and agricultural experts who, who flat out deny that that could even be possible, that there's no need to do that. They don't do that. I've read other things that say they use it a lot. But anyway, it's contested. The thing about agriculture in America is, you know, first of all, we need it. And we need to have smart people working with farmers to help them deal with these these um, what we like to call the anthropo, anthropocenic uh, effects of, of climate change. That is man-made or man-induced. Uh, or we're living in a time like, uh, you know, uh, like the Pleistocene or and we're living in the Anthropocene where man has had the biggest impact on changing the environment. And we need to have smart people and scientists working to help with that. The problem is that the way things went in America around agriculture is that agrochemical companies played an outsized role in the you know, early part of the war and then after the war in trying to transform its market for chemicals that were used in war uh, for use in the, on the home front in agriculture. And so they've been doing that for a long time, starting with DDT and Agent Orange and other herbicides and defoliants and insecticides. And the, they actually tried to use genetic engineering technologies and Roundup um, in order to eliminate these more toxic uh, chemicals from the, uh, the agricultural system. The problem is the way, it, the way agrochemical companies or chemical companies got looped into the ag- business of agriculture in the U.S. has created this Gordian knot of dependency of farmers on these companies for seeds, plants, and fertilizers, because the things they're doing to the plants require the use, of, enable them to use pesticides which, and herbicides, which kill the soil, so they have to replenish the soil with fertilizers. 
and they can't, you know, harvest their own seeds. They have to buy them new each year because they're patented and all this stuff. And so in order to make these farms survive with that dependency, they've had to become big industrial farms that produce monocrops. And so that's what we've done in the U.S. is that our biggest agriculture is these a few major crops that we don't even eat. We turn it into junk food. We turn it into fuel. We turn it and we ship it elsewhere. The vegetable and uh, fruit supplies and livestock from meat and poultry and other things is actually not as big a part of our agricultural system. Um, there is a huge movement to try to pay attention to ecosystem effects and health that is very old. It goes way back before Rachel Carson. And right now, the reason sort of our work fits with some of this stuff, and I've been trying to get this into the school, uh, medical school curriculum uh, so that, that physicians and healthcare professionals can also pay attention to this, is trying to pay attention to how we can replenish the soil and create a toxic-free environment for growing food. It's, you know, it's a very hard um, thing to figure out. But we know, for instance, that lots of – it's not just organic. I mean, organic is a very fraught, <laughs> fraught field as well. Not all organic farmers are doing things that are good for the soil. Uh, not all organic farmers are not using pesticides. Um, but there are these movements in, for instance, regenerative agriculture – uh, where the emphasis is on no tilling, no pesticides, using cover crops to replenish the soil, and you know producing food that is basically so much healthier, and the soil is healthier. On top of that, those methods actually enable us to sequester more carbon in the soil. There's a whole initiative that came out of the Paris Climate Accord about sequestering 4% more carbon uh, per year per thousand acres, the 4, four per thousand initiative. And the argument goes that you could actually reverse climate change if you effectively did this in enough of the world. So there are all kinds of reasons we should be supporting this kind of farming, you know, eco-friendly farming. And um, that, that, you know, people say, well, we could never feed all the world. Well, that's, I think, something that remains to be determined. I think we need to do studies to see if that's actually the case. But if we subsidize the regenerative agriculture, organic farming communities, the way we subsidize the big uh, commodity crop farming communities, uh, I think, you know, the, the, the equation might be reversed quite a bit. Um, but again, then we're getting into politics and finance and economics and, you know, there are big barriers there. <laughs> the silence is me drawing my breath in so I don't jump up and down on my soapbox. <laughs> Um, I'm going to do it just for a moment uh, because it makes me think about, uh, again, growing up in Salinas Valley, as a kid, uh, A, I was dusted pretty regularly with DDT driving through the Salinas Valley, like the scene in North by Northwest where the crop dusters are coming down, but instead they were spraying it with DDT because we didn't know. It was fun to stick your yeah. head out the car and be dusted by the crop dusters. Wow, cool. Right. Is that. And then the other thing that really once I understood what they were doing probably contributed to my career of yelling into a microphone was you would drive through parts of Salinas Valley and you would see plastic go down on the field. They'd cover raw earth with plastic. And then what they'd do is that they would gas that field with methyl bromide. And now methyl bromide would kill everything. Pretty much. That's just the deal. It kills everything. And it also helps to destroy the ozone layer because of its half-life. Then into that sterilized soil, they would put modified, genetically modified tomato, uh, strawberries. And they were, they were modified because they were trying to make them something, last longer, kind of like the tomatoes, where they didn't want them to bruise actually on the vine like tomato, tomatoes or strawberries really will, is they'll ripen on in strawberries or a ground cover kind of thing, so they actually ripen very low to the earth. And so they wanted strawberries to last longer. So they had these modified strawberries that had such weak immune systems that the only way they could survive was to put them in sterilized soil. So that is such the polar opposite with no precautionary principle at all or thought. And it took probably almost a decade to finally make that be stopped. And it goes to this pattern of Again, we're not we're not making plants that are immunosuppressed 
not immunosuppressed, and we don't have soil like what you're talking about, the idea of actually supporting regenerative farming. What a radical idea. We grow healthy food in healthy soil. We build the microbiome of the soil. And, and I want to lean into for a moment of, in your studies, since you're an international studier, are there other cultures that have a better relationship with the soil and the earth than we do who understand that growing healthy food in healthy soil is a thing? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, anthropologically, I would say, you know, if you just look at the history of, you know, non, most communities in most parts of the world that were agro, uh, you know, that were not yet agro-industrial had long traditions of small farmers producing their food, you know, um, multi-crop systems, um, rotating Sweden, that kind of thing. Of course, these also had problems. I mean, you know, they were subject, they could be subject to blights and to drought effects and all kinds of things. So there are, I mean, let's not be naive, you know, traditional farming in places where agro-industrial farming has not yet hit is risky. Uh, it's possible that you could have mass famine from <laughs> farms being wiped out and crops being wiped out. Uh, at the same time, you know, the, the other solution is, the only solution is not uh, creating these um, uh, you know, reproducing the problems, the patterns that we produced here in America around agro-industrial farming. Those aren't the only ways to go forward. Um, you know, I think also it's important to know that a lot of the solutions that people are coming up with in places where, for example, like bananas are a good example, um, you know, crops are at risk because of natural pests. Um, you know, efforts to create, you know, scientific opportunities to intervene are happening all the time. Even Monsanto, which is now owned by Bayer, Bayer Corporation in Germany, has a large group of people who are trying to create products that will improve the microbiome of the soil. So they're in on it. They know that this is the future, right? But it's an industrial model, so they have to make it so that farmers are continuing to work in these um, dependency relationships with big agricultural suppliers of goods and products. And that's a very different model from what you have in places like, you know, the um, most of the, un, I'll call it the undeveloped world or underdeveloped world or not yet industrial parts of the world. You know, there aren't very many of them left, but uh, they they can't afford to get looped into those kinds of relationships. They they are part of local economies that have their own logic that need to be sustained and protected. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 a tough it's a tough challenge to figure out how to how to actually do the right thing for the climate, do the right thing for the environment, do the right thing for our health systems. Uh, I've long maintained that the people who need to be involved in this more vocally are physicians, uh, people like Michelle, uh, you know, but it, mainstream medical doctors need to be more on board. And, you know, they are starting to get on board in terms of recognizing the need to get um, food insecure populations uh, uh, attended to with healthy food. So they're like budding opportunities in the medical community around culinary medicine or around food pharmacies and that kind of thing. Um, uh, I co-taught a course with Daphne Miller and uh, a medical student, Rebecca Newmark, at UCSF on food, farm, climate, health. And we started looking into some of these things. But it's a, it's a you know, they're an advocacy group that could be involved. And they are, it's just hard. There's a lot to teach in medical school. There's not a lot of room for this kind of thing. And as I said, the other challenge is that the science, if you go to the science, it's very conflicted. Um, it's hard to know <laughs> uh, whether things like GMOs are harmful to humans, because if you just look at the literature, you come out with a lot of different views. So, And then there's the old consensus. Well, and how do we, thinking about the medical world, I I mean, I've interviewed a boatload of doctors, and I do see the trend moving toward uh, starting back in the 80s. I'll just say the 80s. I can't go any further back. Um, we talked about it backstage that early on, one of the doctors I interviewed was Doris Rapp, a medical doctor who mm -hmm. wrote, Is This Your Child?, talking about toxins and 
doing studies, doing film studies of classrooms and, you know, ADHD before that was a thing. And I mean, so people have been talking about it. And I think we, I don't know how, how you actually get the idea of, I, I understand doctors have an amazing amount of training and yet like your book is, has this radical idea that food is the foundation. At some point, somebody in the medical training world has to get that we put this fuel into our body every day. It's fuel. It's how our bodies are built. It's how we're formed. We don't. We're not breatharians. That's a whole other show. And yeah, I I think that's. I understand they have a lot to learn, and I don't care in the sense of food is what we put on our face every day. So at some point, somebody, I mean, has everybody, well, I know there's an answer to this because of course there has been, but I mean, there, I don't know if there have been studies looking at people who are raised with organic foods or even the, I know the Seventh-day Adventists have a long-term uh, from the longevity project. I've interviewed a couple of people talking about that where those kinds of cultures live longer and healthier, but there are probably there could be other factors in that arena, their lifestyle, their lack of this, their maybe they're not into technology, whatever it is, there could be other benefits. But I, it would be interesting to see a study of precautionary principle idea of, oh, you eat organic foods, let's start there. What harm will that do, right. eating clean foods? Let's try that. What about that? So, and then there are some people who are trying to set up uh, human food studies. It's very hard to do them. You can't really control what people eat for very long and get any good results. Um, there are, in the National Academies of Science, Engineering, Medicine, report on genetically modified food and pesticides. There are uh, is a review. It's, it's a meta-study, and there's a review of the epidemiological literature that says, People in Europe um, where they have followed the precautionary principle don't necessarily have any more of, of some of the major diseases that we talk about than we do, even though our food environment is saturated with these foods. And so those are used as a basis to claim that there's no real harm in, from these things. But those aren't really useful studies. Those are correlations, not, not causal studies. Um, so you've got problems with the science. How do you do the science in an effective way? And there are people who are trying. Um, but, you know, the other problem is that chemical harm is really hard to trace. You know, you, you, it's really hard to know whether one chemical is causing one thing once you get out of the lab. Um, a lot of chronic morbidities that we talk about in the book are things that have multiple causes, probably. And also, chemicals affect people differently. So you might have one family where in one kid, the chemical does one thing, and in another kid, it doesn't do anything. So it's really hard science and it's hard to do the science when there's no funding for it so there's a there are a lot of people who are very concerned about this in medicine there are people who are studying the effects of pesticides that known pesticides including methyl bromide on which is still being used to raise strawberries mm-hmm. um, in the medical community and those people are going up against you know difficulty to get funding and also smack up against the chemical corporations that basically own the journals and the regulatory agencies about these things. So it's very hard to make inroads in that area because, you know, the research that shows these things are incredibly damaging and harmful are like the tip of the iceberg. And no one wants this to come out on some level. There is a way in which the conspiracy theory arguments about this are right. Um, But it's also true that the science is just really hard to do and especially without funding it's really hard to do and then I also was going to say something about the we do talk in the book about why isn't food more part of the curriculum and there there is another way in which there's a conspiracy theory about and it's partly true probably that medicine in the west Paul Starr wrote a great book called the transformation of American medicine which he talked about the rise of the research industry in relation to western medicine and the streamlining of medical training around science, um, but also around the close collaboration with the pharmaceutical industry. So we practice more pharmaceutically oriented medicine than um, we might have if this this historical formation hadn't happened. 
Um, but and, and so that kind of put out of business a lot of people who would have said, oh, we could use herbs, we can use, you know, alternative medical theories or holistic practitioners. And that's been true for, you know, 100 years. But I also think it's important to remember that medicine is hard to practice um, in ways that focus on food because people don't really like to change the way they eat. You can tell them, even now, we can, you know, doctors are telling people all the time, don't eat junk food, don't eat Coca-Cola, don't drink sodas, don't eat too much sugar, don't eat too much. You know, they tell them all the time to do this, but people don't like to change. And so for doctors, it, you know, it's easier to get a pill, give them a pill to take care of the symptom that's resulted from bad eating than it is to get them to change their diet. Um, so that's why Michelle and I talk in the book about how it's really a public health issue. It's not an individual choice issue. We need to have good food and healthy food. As, and we need to get rid of the pesticides from the environment as a public health issue. It's not about people making choices about what they'll eat. If they go to the store and they buy something to eat, it should be healthy. A radical idea. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> radical. Um, and there's a phrase, I know we're moving kind of toward the end, but not quite. Um, there's a phrase that, uh, and it fits into everything that we've talked about, uh, there's a phrase I've used for a really long time, and I don't remember where I got the idea or if it just formulated in my own brain pan. There's this thing that isn't considered when people talk about yeah, glyphosate is bad, yes. Um, methyl bromide is bad, yes. Mold in your home is bad. You know, we have, I, I interview specialists in many arenas, but one of the things that I'm really look at, and, and especially as an old-school herbalist who's worked with people with a lot of different kinds of things, is this idea of total toxic load. And I mean that mm -hmm. by what we eat, what we're exposed to in the environment, indoor, indoor and outdoor. Carpets, disgusting gatherers of frightening things, children's that Babies that are crawling around on carpets are exposed to more stuff than children who grow up on hardwood floors. And topicals, the things we apply to our bodies, lotions, salves, creams, jellies, ointments, everything imaginable in the cosmetic world. That's a whole horror story. And indoor cleaning products. I mean, this total toxic load of what we're exposed to, any one of those could be cause a tipping point of like, oh, too much. And, and, you know, starting with food, clean food, seems like a really kind of easy thing to do. Even though I, my hand is up from time to time, I might be like a dog with my nose in the bag of, in the bag of a bottom of potato chips, not knowing how I got there. Um, but they're organic, <laughs> and they're in coconut oil. So it is really hard to change, but I, I think we have to start looking at that, you know, start with one thing maybe approach. I, don't, I can't remember if I know you're really focusing on food in the book, but in the bigger picture, any one of these things, start out by looking at what you're applying in your house. What kind of, you know, how do we, is there a place in your view that we can have that in, I don't know, how, do we get that into culture? Do we have groups like Moms Across America who are talking about, you know, things? Or do you see a possibility toward that? I guess what I'm really asking you is, do you have a vision for our future medicine or lives or world or planet? Because I know you have a project that you're working on that's about food and health and planetary survival. That's in that yeah, arena I mean, to I me is total toxic load. How do, we, where do, how do we move that direction? Yeah, I mean, I can say that from my field in medical anthropology and, and basically in anthropology, there are a lot of us working on this. It's a big topic. There are a lot of people writing about it, a lot of people trying to understand what the causes are of this. I, so, I certainly believe, I, I agree with you, that we seem to be living in a time where the toxic load is very high. Um, I'm not a physician, um, and I'm not an epidemiologist, so I can't give you the specifics, but I agree with those. I agree with Michelle's version of this, and I agree with the general assessment that there is a higher toxic load we're carrying around in our bodies and that we're absorbing and we're living in. And it's, it's very much showing up. I would say just 
you know, based on what I've observed, but not because we have enough science to prove it, that this is showing up in a lot of morbidities that we didn't used to have, and especially chronic morbidities. So going forward, how do we, how do, we do this? I mean, my little particular line of, of emphasis and advocacy, as, as you've noted, is trying to get the medical community to pay more attention. So at my university, there's this great new thing called the Environmental Health Institute run by Tracy Woodruff. She's on it. She's trying to get more of this into the curriculum. She's trying to get more funding for research for this. I mean, they're focusing on reproductive health and the, the prospect of epigenetic transformation and in utero and um, congenital you know, problems that come from uh, endocrine-disrupting exposures. My, my university has the library on the glyphosate papers. They're trying to look at that. It's sort of been orchestrated by Stan Glantz, who did the tobacco study. So there's stuff out there that's happening. Um, and, you know, what, what we need is to just get professional, institutional um, funding for this kind of thing, and we need to get more of it trickling from the top down. The bottom-up stuff has been there for a long time, and it's still there, and it's very powerful, but it can only go so far. You know, the, the patients who have stories about their chronic fatigue or their fibromyalgia who were, in, who were cured by going to integrative doctors or figuring out through the Internet that if they changed their food and they got rid of all their chemicals, that they got better. And then they're giving testimonials, and it's all over the Internet. I mean, your show has a lot of this, but what, what we need is more people from the top down. We need, we need you know, people in the EPA. We need people in the government. We need people in scientific institutions really committed to looking at this and drawing maps of how chemical toxic, toxicity and chemical exposure are impacting the human beings of the planet now, and also the whole ecosystem of the planet. Um, and so, you know, I mean, that's my particular area of interest is getting doctors to pay more attention to it, training people who can do this research and um, come up with a different um, model for what we mean by public health and, and how much we um, allow. Because right now we have, we have agencies like the EPA uh, that are devoted to keeping our toxic load down, but they don't have much ability to actually ban these things. Their main job is to determine how much is allowed of these things. And so that isn't hmm. working, you know, because we, we, no one's really studying what the overall load is of these things. We just, we look at it in the environment, but we don't look at it in human tissue. So, um, and then when, even when we know, like we know glyphosate showing up in the urine and breast milk of people, but we don't know what it's doing in bodies. Once it's in there, we can speculate on it like we did in the book, but we don't really know. And so we just need more top down funding for this kind of thing. And, and so I think one of the biggest things people can do to try to address this problem is vote for people in uh, political office that are focused on it. You know, get people into government who care about it. What a radical idea. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing people in who actually get it, who actually have it as a passion. As you say, the the agencies, that's a whole other question I was going to ask you, but we don't have that much time because that's a whole show about the – where are the U.S. regulatory agencies like the USDA, FDA, and the APA, which I thought the theory of those groups was that they were ter there to kind of protect us? I can't make that into a real question. Really? They don't seem to be? Kind of? Yeah, well, they're all involved. They all have a role in it, and they all do the work they're supposed to be doing. The problem is there are these gaps. First of all, they don't consider GE foods to be different from regular foods, any other foods. So they don't have a lot of regulatory um, materials there. They use the science that's mostly produced by industry, and so they trust that you know that work shows that it's safe, even though we know that that work wasn't actually based a lot of the work that's there in the glyphosate paper show this in particular in Carrie uh, Gillum's book, Whitewash is a good book to look at for that. Um, you know, a lot of the data was just made up. <laughs> and so, and then the FDA also doesn't really work, care about GE foods because they're just interested in outbreaks of, of things. They don't, they also follow the idea that it's just like any other food. And so there are all these gaps in the regulatory agencies and the EPA does regulate the food pesticides 
and the foods that have been turned into pesticides. But again, their job has been to determine how much is safe to use, not whether we should ban it at all. I mean, there is movement. The recent determination by the International Agency on Research for Cancer that glyphosate is a probable carcinogen, which got picked up by the WHO as a probable carcinogen, has had an impact, especially in California, where they included glyphosate in the Proposition 65 Toxic uh, Water and um, Air Act. And, and so there is some second looking at what the rates are, like are the rates set at the right level to protect humans or not? And so that, you know, deliberation, of course, that is all, every time that effort is made, the chemical companies come back full force and contest the science and protest and everything. But, you know, there have been a, a number of lawsuits now that have been uh, decided in favor of the plaintiffs who, who argued that they had, uh, non developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma from exposure to um, uh, glyphosate in Monsanto products. So it's mm-hmm. happening slowly and slowly, but um, we need more, and we definitely need the agencies to be scrutinized and given the power to actually, um, you know, eliminate things instead of just uh, allow them. Mm-hmm. Well, I really look forward to your next book. I don't know if you're writing it yet, but I kind of think there's a, you seem like a person who writes, goes into the study and writes a lot, uh, that this idea of food, health, and planetary survival, because it really is – we have many other issues on the planet that are creating issues. And However, if we cleaned up our foods, it's going to have nothing but a benefit to the planet. Because again, the planet is, ha- ha- is developing its own toxic load. I mean, there's no reason. It was in the 70s that people were putting on the cover of the National Enquirer small penises on alligators in Florida swamps, and it was as a result of endocrine disruption. So I mean, this has been this is not new, but it's just that it's. I feel kind of like in this realm of health. That we're it's kind of like that Titanic. It's going to be real slow to turn around, but I'm talking to people like you and Michelle is giving me rays of like, oh man, we might okay. I see us turning slightly. Um, it's just a matter of the planetary survival part. I kind of think. Yeah, I agree, and I I love your optimism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I try to keep it up. <laughs> we can get dark and gnarly now. I could go down the road uh-huh. right away. Um, with where we're now, where I ask you, where would you like people to find what's making our children sick, and where can f- people find out more information about your work and research? Oh, um, so the book is available on Amazon. Um, absolutely, go there, buy it, give it away as gifts for Christmas. <laughs> um, and then my own work, uh, you can find out more about me through the UCSF website. And I just, I'm Vincent Adams at UCSF, and you, you can um, look up my profile or my webpage and see more about the other projects that I've worked on and, and anything else about me, and, um, including the new book that I've, I'm, I'm drafting now. That's exciting. We'll be scheduling that. <laughs> we'll be talking about that mm-hmm. new book. I can't wait. Um, that was really great. Thank you so much, Vincent. That was a great conversation, even if we ran well, off into some fields because I dragged us there, but it was still really good. Thank you so much. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. You bet. All right, everybody, have a great rest of the week and uh, weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>